Amen. Amen. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Gathering Band, for leading us and preparing our hearts. I mean, I'll tell you what, they do an awesome job just getting us to the throne of God. So I'm grateful uh, that they have led us there. And now I want to turn, if you will, to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 together this morning. You know, I've gotten the opportunity over several years to really visit a lot of different churches and worship with them, celebrate, even several moments I got to preach. You know, when I was in college, I had served as a music minister, a youth minister for a while, and then I was moving into the pastorate. My last year of college, I had moved into the pastor of one of the local churches there in North Mississippi. But in between that time, I got to go out and I got to preach at a lot of different churches, especially some of the smaller churches. And there were some churches that were there that you could tell they were on fire for the Lord. God was doing some great things. And then there were some other churches that were struggling. I remember when Leslie and I prepared for a one-hour drive down to Woodland, Mississippi. We drove down to Woodland that Sunday morning. I had prepared my sermon, gotten everything ready. And when we got to the church, you know, we pulled up. And yes, I was early because I wanted to make sure that I had gotten to the right place. But there were no cars on the parking lot. And I was thinking to myself, have I gotten to the right place? Have I misunderstood? I mean, one of my friends in college, well, I thought he was one of my friends. You ever met some of those guys before? Like, you thought they were on your side, but then they set you up in certain areas, and then you kind of questioned that over that? Well, one of my friends had gotten me to come to this church to be able to preach. So I was sitting there with nobody on the parking lot, and I was thinking, well, nobody's going to show up. Leslie and I, I think we were engaged at that time. So she was about to hear a great message from her fiancé. And all of a sudden, this guy pulled up. He was kind of an older guy. He had finally gotten to the church, and he welcomed us. He unlocked the door of the church, and we all went in. And people began to, well, they began to gather. And when I looked out, I mean, ultimately, we had 11 people there, counting me and Leslie. And the older guy actually looked and he said, Brother Reggie, he said, does your fiance play the piano? And I said, actually, she does play a little bit at the piano. Well, good, because we need a piano player this morning. You see, back then, you may not believe this, but a lot of us preachers or pastors got opportunities to either preach or to pastor our church because our wives played the piano, because they needed piano players back then much more than they needed preachers back then. So she sat down, and we played. We got through it, the 11 of us, you know. And I got up and began to preach. And I was preaching my heart out. I was giving it my best. And some of the people, I think uh, Leslie was paying attention, the other nine or so, kind of. But they had a baby there. I had forgotten this till just kind of racking in my brain. But there was a baby that was there. And they would hand that baby down the, uh, down the pew, like while I was preaching. You know, like, hey, yeah, yeah, you know, like. And they even stood up at one time and handed the baby behind them to somebody else that was sitting behind them. And I thought to myself, what am I doing here? You know, here I am, I'm preaching, I'm giving it. But it's kind of like, you know, I got in the car and I said, Leslie, I don't think that church is going to last. You know, obviously it was all one family. And they had tried to keep this church going and all. And I said, Les, I said, baby, this, this church is dead. This church, unless something happens, and unfortunately, 
it wasn't long that they did close the doors of that church. And we see that happen actually all across our nation. We see churches who are closing their doors. We see churches that are literally dead. And not just in number. I would suggest to you that there are some churches that may have a lot of numbers, but they have very little of the Spirit of God in them. They seem to just be dead. Well, that's the diagnosis that Jesus brings to the church at Sardis. That's where we are this morning, Revelation chapter 3. We've been looking at the seven churches in Asia Minor, and you see that all of them are different. They have different characteristics. They have different uh, strengths and weaknesses. And Jesus comes to this church at Sardis, and he diagnoses them. He says in verse 1, to the angel, to the pastor, to the messenger of the church in Sardis, right? These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So this is Jesus. The seven spirits would be the idea of the completeness of the Holy Spirit. Just as Isaiah tells us about the seven spirits, and he shows us it's the Holy Spirit. So Jesus coming in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he says, there were the seven stars, the messengers, the angels themselves that he's holding. He says, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive but you are dead. The diagnosis. The attendant physician, Jesus comes and he says, you know, I've heard about you. You have a reputation. You have a name that things are going well, that you are alive. But really, as I do my assessment of you, what I notice, you're actually dead. Do you hear those words? Do you hear how those words again would sting if you had just been hearing Jesus speak to you in the church. I mean, you are dead. I hope that would surprise you if somebody said that to you. Let's say you go into the doctor's office. You know, you go in, you finally get your appointment, you go back to the back, they call you to the back, the nurse comes, he comes in and He takes all your vital signs, but you can know something's wrong. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but like you can tell when they start panicking. Like maybe they couldn't get your blood pressure the first three times they tried it. Or maybe they had listened to something and something just didn't seem right. Now they didn't say anything because of the professionalism of the nurse, but something seemed out of whack. He goes and he gets the doctor and she comes back. And the doctor walks in and says something to this, hey, I hate to tell you this, but my nurse that was just in here, he said you had no pulse. That nurse that was in here, he said he couldn't find your blood pressure. That nurse, well, that nurse said he even kind of tried to listen to you breathe and didn't even hear any breathing. And, 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 and when the nurse, when the nurse checked your temperature, it was like 65 degrees. For all practical purposes, you are dead. Yeah, that would get your attention, huh? Somebody told me this morning after the service, they said, yeah, that would get my attention to change doctors. Yes. You know, but here it would get your attention your doctor looked at you and said, you're dead? What well, should get your attention when Jesus looks at the church and says, you're dead. I'm looking at all your vital signs, and yes, I know you've got a name, and I know you've got a reputation, 
But really, when I look at you, you're dead. That would be a sobering diagnosis to hear. You see, the church had a reputation. It had been great in its day. But now, it was beginning to wane in its influence and its ministry. Just like the city, the city of Sardis. If you were to do a study of the city of Sardis, you would find that the city of Sardis was one of the greatest cities in Asia Minor. It was the capital of what was called the Lydian Empire. There was a king that was named Croesus. Some of you may remember him from history classes, but he was a noted king. Some believe that the legend of Midas, you remember Midas, all the gold and the wealth, that that legend came from Sardis. Because this area was so affluent, this area had so much wealth and so much power, and they considered themselves invincible. They believed that because they were built on this hill, which was a natural fortress, that they could not be overtaken. As a matter of fact, the city that was built upon the hill, it had three sides, three steep slopes that it seemed impossible for somebody to scale or somebody to attack from that side. They only had one path to get in. It was from the south. It was a narrow road that people would use, perhaps. So they felt very, very comfortable in their existence. They felt maybe even overconfident. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that pride goeth before a fall, right? Overconfidence can lead you to a fall. And what happened... That city of Sardis did fall. One of, these, one of those days the Persians came and, hey, they weren't worried about, or the, those in Sardis, they weren't worried about these three other areas. They just said, as long as we protect the south. They had no guards in the other areas. And what did the Persians do? The Persians came and they sent somebody scaling up one of those walls where there were no guards and the Persians defeated Sardis. Sardis was defeated later on and then an earthquake hit. Can you only imagine how the city itself, which was once known for its glory, known for all of this wealth, now it is a shadow of itself. And the city oftentimes gives some type of characteristic to the church. That is, the church often mirrors the city in which it's in. And I'll tell you that the church, while it had been great at one time, it had a great reputation, now it was dead. You see, they had a celebrated past. Great, great past. Great, great days that they could talk about. I would call them the glory days of the church. You ever be, hear people talk about the glory days? Oh, the glory days. Unfortunately, we talk about the glory days so much we miss the glory of the days we live in. But the glory days. For example... Saltillo High School, you've heard of it? Yes? No? You need to know your Mississippi geography and life. Saltillo, North Mississippi, Saltillo High School, football. You've heard of it again? No? The glory days, back in the 70s. Like when I graduated in 96, they were talking about the glory days of the 70s then. Coach Willis Wright was his name. He led us to the promised land. We had championships. Unfortunately, Coach Wright left, and he went over to a little school called South Panola. If you're from Mississippi, you would know that South Panola won state championships every year. They called it the University of South Panola. 
But when Coach Wright left us and went to South Panola, the glory days seemed to end. Now, my senior year, I remember it like it was yesterday. We won the first three games of the season. There was excitement on the campus. The glory days had returned until we lost the last eight games of the season. They're still having trouble up at Sautilla. My sister's coming to see me this weekend because of homecoming activities, and she wanted to come and see Abigail, and, and that's great. You might ought to pray a little extra grace for me and my sister as we get along this weekend. But my sister, when she called me, she, she said, Hey, y'all good on football? I said, well, we'll see what happens. I don't know. We had to reschedule this game. We got some more people coming in. We're going to play a 4A team. Kind of a little concerned about that. She said, hey, I'm going to bring some Sotella football players. I said, y'all not going to playoffs? Reggie, when was the last time we went to the playoffs? I said, well, I'll just ask him. I'll just see him. She said, Reggie, we have not won a game this season. I said, really? She said, actually, we did. They had to forfeit one game one team did because of COVID. So we actually got one win this season. I said, that, that, that's awesome. But you know what? You go back and the old timers, they still talk about the glory days of Sotelo High football. You know what they would do at Sardis? They would talk about their past and it would be all about the glory days. Oh, how good it was. Do you remember the time we had people joining our church? Do you remember the times when we had people that were being baptized? Do you remember those kinds of moments? Now listen, I believe that you and I should celebrate the history that God has given us, the spiritual history. I am grateful that the Lord has blessed us here at Temple with 90 plus years of ministry. I'm grateful we can celebrate those things. But you and I cannot live in the past. We can't live in what God has done. What I hope and pray that we as a church would see is what God will and can do. Because here they were with a celebrated past, but what I call a somber present. They look around and there's really nothing going on. Jesus said, I know your works. In verse 2, he said, I have not found your works perfect before God. You know what that means? It means that your works are not where they should be before God. They're not complete. They're not satisfying. They're not fulfilling. You've not reached that standard. So you've had a good time in the past great for you. But what are you doing for me right now? How are you serving me? Because this is what happens. This is what happens. When you live in the past, you are disobedient in the present. When you're only living in the past, you are disobedient in what God wants to do in your life right now. I see people sometimes in our churches, and some of our older ones, and I know some of you are younger, but some of our older ones will say, Oh, I tell you what, Dr. Reggie, I taught 40 years in that Sunday school class, but it's just time for me to step out. I'm through. I'm retired. I'm over. Well, it's okay for God to transition you, and maybe you ought not to teach in that class anymore. But I want you to know, maybe if however age you are that day, God, God has not called you to stop. God has not called you to retire. God's not called you to just simply give up. There is too much riding on the kingdom of God for some people to start sitting down. We need everybody in the game. We need everybody in the present moment. We don't need to live in the past. We need to live in the present. Unfortunately, 
As Warren Wiersbe said, there are too many people that not only guard their spiritual heritage, they want to embalm their spiritual heritage. And just as Vance Havner said some years ago, that what you see is that in institutions, you begin oftentimes with a man, then you have a movement, then you have a machine where everything is working just right. But unfortunately, what you'll find in the end is a monument. We don't want to be a monument. We want the Lord to use us. Sardis here, they were living in their past. They had a reputation of what they had done, but in the present, they were disobedient. And because of that, because of that, they were facing a non-existent future. Because when you live in the past, you forsake the future. God doesn't want to just use you for what you have done. God wants to use you for what he's going to do in you now and in the future. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. He says, he says I'm not, I'm going to come. And there's, there's not really much of a future for you if you have not watched and done what you were supposed to do. Now, let me note this about the church. Unfortunately, they were very comfortable in the way things were. They were very comfortable in the status quo. Why do I see that? What, did you notice that this church, it's one of the few churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, this church was not persecuted whatsoever. You never have, like, you never have, like, Jesus saying, hey, know that Satan's coming after you. Know that you're going to be persecuted. He never mentions that. Why? Why would Satan even care? Why would he even attack? If you're comfortable and you're not really doing anything for the kingdom, why would he even come at you? Oh, I'm very comfortable right now. Everything seems to be going well. Is it because you're not really making a contribution to the kingdom anyway? Why would Satan even worry about you? He knows that if you continue on the course, there is not a non-existent future on your behalf. But this is what I like. There's the diagnosis that you're dead. But then there is the cure that is offered. The cure. Now, that should surprise some of us a little bit. There's a cure for death. Like, think of this. Like, there's death. When you die, what are you going to take? What prescription? What is it that's going to bring you back? I mean, come on. I mean, you're, you're dead. Well, with Christ, there is always hope. And this is the one that has the power to bring that which is dead back to life. Do you realize that's the one we serve? The one who can take the dead and bring, it, bring life. That's the whole central message. Remember the, the event. Jesus himself. Jesus died physically and bodily. And what happened? He rose again. There was life. I am thankful that Zach led us in that last song a moment ago. This is the first time I think I've really heard that song, how it ministered to my heart. But 
you know, one day we will see Christ face to face. And according to Revelation, this is going to happen, that one day there will be a resurrection, the resurrection of the church itself. So if Jesus does not come in my lifetime, and I think he, pob- I think he possibly could come in my lifetime, but if Jesus does not come in my lifetime and I die and they put my body in the ground, I know not only will my spirit be with the Lord, but one of these days when Jesus returns, guess what? My body is going to live again. There's going to be a resurrection. And if God can bring a resurrection like that, then this is the same God who can bring a resurrection in our churches now. Like our churches that seem to be dead and they're just kind of flailing around. This is the same power that is available for us now. This is the same spirit that can invade our hearts and lives. And look, I'm talking about the church, but you know the church, the church really would be you and be me. The church would be individuals. The church is not a building The church would be us. So if you feel a little dead, if you feel a little barren, if you're not doing exactly what you need to do, the God who brought forth the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the God who can resurrect something new and fresh in your life. A lot of times we need that. We need him to work. He brings us hope. Hey, my first pastorate when I was in college, it was called Canaan Baptist Church. I thought it was awesome because who wouldn't want to come to the promised land to go to church, huh? Canaan Baptist Church. Especially when you went down the street and you found a few of the other churches. There was a church not too far from us called Blackjack Church. Why wouldn't you go to Canaan over Blackjack, you know? Or maybe the other church. It was about five miles from us. I would drive past it sometimes. I kid you not, it was named Little Hope Baptist Church. That should be inspiring every Sunday morning, right? I mean, just pull up into the parking lot, see the sign, Little Hope. Yeah, I'm about to go get my Little Hope on. I said myself, if we can't do better than Little Hope, we're in trouble. Because here, yes, the church is dead, but there's hope. And it's not just Little Hope, it's Great Hope. Because Jesus is the one that can come and make a difference in people's hearts and lives. So what's, what's the treatment plan? How do you come to the cure for a dead church? Here it is right here. Spelled out for you. Verse 3. Be watchful. Be watchful. Renew yourself. The word is to be vigilant. Jesus used this word like when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane that Thursday night. And he told his disciples, he said, hey, be watchful, be vigilant, be alert. Look at what's happening around you. Unfortunately, they fell asleep. But Jesus reminds us, hey, you've got to be watchful. You need to wake up. Some translations will say, wake up. To borrow the same analogy, you and I are in like a death sleep time from time to time. Or maybe some of our churches, we're in a death sleep. We're walking zombies. We're the walking dead. We're spiritual zombies walking around. Now I know there are people that literally sleep in church sometimes. They do. 
And most of them think I can't see them because they think these, uh, these lights blind me. And those that go to the gathering at 9 o'clock, they think I can't see them, but I do take pictures. There are people that sleep from time to time. Hey, Canaan Baptist Church, my first pastorate, it was a church that would seat about 75 people. Good Sunday, we'd have 40. Great Sunday, we'd have 50. But there was always one deacon there that would sit on the second row. Always. And he would sleep every Sunday. Every Sunday. I kid you not. I'm not making it up. Now, back then, I was much more animated in my preaching. And sometimes I would come down and I would walk into the aisles and all that. Especially, I would walk over toward that deacon. And sometimes I would, you know, because I'd get really on fire. I'm not sure it was the Holy Spirit, though, that was putting me on fire. Or just my anger that he was asleep when I was putting me on fire. But I would do that. I'd try to wake him up from time to time. Couldn't, man. He'd sit there until 12 noon. 12 noon, I kid you not, his watch alarm would go off. And then he would sit there like this the whole time. Kind of like I was on his time. I want to say, I could have finished this much earlier if you just listened to the first sermon I preached, but now I've got to preach another one just to you. You see people sleep in church. Oh, by the way, at the end of this, we're going to have deacon election. Try to elect a deacon that doesn't sleep in church, all right? There are only about two out of those 20 that do sleep, but don't choose one of those two, all right? Seriously, you realize there are a lot of people that are spiritually sleeping. Oh, we make fun of those who physically sleep, but there's some that are just walking through the motions of life, and it's just kind of like they're spiritually asleep. And Jesus says, wake up. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs to wake up. We need to be vigilant. We need to renew. We need to reinforce. Notice what he says. Strengthen the things which remain that are about to die. There's some things that are just about to die, but you need to step up and reinforce and strengthen and establish. The idea is to set your heart toward those things. You're to start remembering. He says, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Remember. Start remembering. Remember what? What you've received and what you've heard. What is that? The Word of God. What God did in you. Many of you in this place, you're saved. And that is awesome. You've given your life to Christ. But this language, which is used for Sardis, was also used of Ephesus. That one which had departed the first love. That one which had moved a little. He said, remember, those of you in this place, you're saved. Maybe you need to come back and remember just a little more. Do you remember how lost you were and how you recognized that? And as the word was spoken to you, maybe through a preacher or maybe through a friend or maybe through a Sunday school teacher or maybe through your parents, you responded. You gave your life to Christ. And now some of you, who've accepted Christ years ago, even some of you who are in college and you're here, there are other things going on. And Would you just take a moment to remember? One of the reasons perhaps your faith looks dead is because you have forgotten what he has done for you. Remember, he says. He says, hold fast or reaffirm 
what I've done. And then he says, repent. Repent means to change mind, heart, soul, will, that you have a different kind of philosophy and attitude that all of a sudden now you've turned toward what God thinks, not just what you think. Decisively repent. So the diagnosis is you're dead. The cure is, here's a treatment plan for you. You work through this way. You follow me. You renew, be watchful. You re-strengthen. You reaffirm. You repent. He, all these things. He said, this is what you do. It's not necessarily a five-day treatment plan. It's like you begin it now. And let me work in you. And then you get to see a little bit of the recovery. That's where these last few verses are. And all of this. In verse 4 it says, You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white. For they are worthy. He says, As you uh, see a recovery in your life, where you come back to life, just know that there is a new clothing. Here, actually, he says there are a few people that have always remained faithful. And I want you to hear this. Whenever you get discouraged, just know there are always faithful people out there. When you want to give up and you think, ah, oh, nobody's really doing anything for the king. Yes, there are. There's always been a remnant and there always will be. You look in the Old Testament, you look in the New Testament, there's always a faithful few. There's always a remnant. Always. He said, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Look in verse 5. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments. They'll be clothed. I didn't tell you this about Sardis, but the people of Sardis bragged. They bragged that they were the ones who really invented the process of dyeing clothes, like dyeing wool. They believed that they were the ones who invented that. And they could see different stains and that kind of stuff. Jesus says, hey, I know you all are braggadocious about the clothes you wear. But one of these days, if you'll return to me, you are going to wear white clothes. White clothes symbolize what? Purity. Righteousness. Look over in the, later in Revelation. It says that those who come back with Jesus, they come back clothed in white. It says they're worthy. But we know this, right? The only reason they are worthy is because Jesus was worthy. Revelation chapter 5 says the Lamb of God, which is worthy, they celebrate him. The reason you and I can wear righteousness, the reason we can be pure is because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Do you realize that when you are saved, that the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to your life? So that when you stand before the Father, you're not standing in your own stinking clothes, your own unrighteousness. You are standing as Jesus Christ would stand in his righteousness. He says, in the recovery period, you're going to be able to put off those old grave clothes. You're not going to have to wear clothes for a funeral. You're going to wear clothes of life. You're going to wear white clothes of righteousness. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Some people see this and they say, Oh, see, you can lose your salvation. And I don't have enough time this morning to flesh it out totally, but 
When Jesus is speaking here, he is not threatening the people. He is giving them confidence in a promise. He's not coming to them and saying, hey, if you don't shape up, that's what he's not, he's not saying that here. He's saying for those who overcome, those who have had faith in me, those of you who have endured, he said, these are individuals, they're not going to be blotted out from the book of life. That word blot can mean erase. It can mean wipe out. It can mean to cease to exist because the evidence has been obliterated. I love that definition of it. Is that he says there's nothing that's going to blot out your name from the book of life. You know why that's the case? Because Jesus has already worked on your behalf. If you're a believer, if you've given your life to him, he's already worked on your behalf to blot out that which would keep you away from him and out of fellowship with him. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Same word. Remember, erase, blot out, wipe. Same word. This is how it's used. Having wiped out, having erased, having obliterated the handwriting of requirements that was against you, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it, to the cross. You know the reason your name won't be obliterated from the book of life? Because your sin has already been obliterated from the record books. Because Jesus Christ, when you give your life to him, Jesus Christ washes you as clean as snow, as white as snow. And what he does is he takes, he takes your sin, he casts it as far as the east is to the west and remembers it no more. Because it was on the cross. It was on the cross that he put that sin, and all evidence now has been obliterated. You can't make a case. The accuser can come, and he can say all he wants to say about you, but there's no case that will stand because of what Jesus has done. He says, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He says in the recovery period, you got new clothes. You got a confidence that your name's there. And he says there's a confession that's made. It's by Jesus. When Jesus says, I will confess you before my Father, before the angels. Think about this moment. When I get to enter heaven one day, Jesus will look and he will see me. And he'll say something maybe like this. He's mine. Oh, yeah, I know him. He's mine. Hey, Father, would you see him? He's mine. Angels, look around. Angels, this is mine. But not just me. Guess what? When you walk in one day, he's going to see you. He's going, hey, it's Connor. Connor, come on up here, man. You, I know you. you. You come right before here. You sit down with me. I know you. Jerome, I know you. You come on in this place. I, Margaret, come on, Margaret. I know who you are. I know you. I got to stop a moment because I think I'm having a Holy Spirit time right here. 
This is where I can forget I'm Baptistic for just a few moments. Because those of us who are dead spiritually, we have been given life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, when you come to me, you will be clothed, you will have confidence, and I will confess you. I will confess you before my Father and before the angels themselves. Man, that's a good recovery, isn't it? To go from the place where you were dead to now you are alive because the cure of Jesus Christ, the cure of the hope of Christ has worked in your life and now you have fully recovered before the very presence of Christ. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Even if you have one ear, he says, listen what the Spirit goes on saying to you. The Spirit's coming to your life right now. Listen, he's coming to your life right now. And he's saying, hey, I'm not pleased with some areas. Be honest with you. You kind of look like a spiritual zombie to me. You're walking around dead. You're not doing the things you used to do. You're not loving me like you used to do. There's not the passion there. You have a reputation. People around, they know that you accepted Jesus at some time in your life. But right now, I'm not really pleased with you. But I want you to come back. I want you to enjoy fellowship with me again. I want you to enjoy a relationship with me again. I want you to come so that you can experience confidence so that you can experience life itself. My friends, I'm going to be down here in just a moment. If you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never given yourself to him, come meet me here. I'm not going to, put you, I'm not going to embarrass you. Just, just talk. Some of you who have accepted Christ, this is a moment for you to stop and say, God, I'm sorry about some things. God, I know you love me, and I want to live in full fellowship with you. And today in this place, renew that relationship. You can do it right where you are. You can come. Again, I'll be here. But hear God's call. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and Lord, we thank you for these moments. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ today. There are some of us in here, Lord, that, Lord, we're not serving as we had once. There's not the passion and the fire in our lives like we had had at one moment. God, stir us. Stir us individually. Stir us corporately. Allow us to respond. Father, there's no doubt in my mind there are some people in this place that are lost. If you were to return today, they would be consigned to a place of separation. Lord, they don't know life. They certainly don't know it abundantly. God, allow your spirit to strive with them, convict them. God, just bless this moment of reflection. Help us all in this place to be faithful.
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?